Sports Yak. One host knows sports. And who's right there? The other doesn't know sports, but somehow they meet in the middle. Corey Mann. Get your big butt out of here. And Indiana Sports Broadcast Hall of Famer. This one will be relived. Chuck Freebie. Forever. Do you like sports? Because we like sports. Let's talk about sports. It's Sports Yak. Sports Yak. It's Sports Yak. The show that brings you in where the magic happens. Welcome to the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sif Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host, Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course. And today I am joined by Sif Pop Writer and Managing Editor, Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? What's going on, man? I am doing well. It is raining profusely. There's a torrential downpour here on a, on a Sunday afternoon when we're recording this, so it is perfect Sunday weather. <laughs> Well, it is not raining here. It is sunny, but very windy, very cold. It's it's not it's not ideal over here. Well, we write for SifPop.com. We provide you with movie reviews, best ever challenges, and other interesting movie-related articles, such as... Uh, I'm sorry, you're going to have to remind me the name of Reed's one. I know it's essentially like classics of 20th century films. 20th century flicks. Flicks. 20th century flicks. I've been really enjoying reading those. Um, especially, I think the North by Northwest one was just really great. Yeah, man. He's and, uh, an exceptional writer. Happy I could get him on the Sif Pop and writing and yeah. showing off his uh, excellent skills. Yeah, I, I really love reading those articles. Uh, of course, the On the Contraries are great by Robert. Man, oh. that La La, one, La La Land and Moneyball one is just on the point. Both of those have been tremendous. The uh, the one that he did on the the Gray and Silence, and then Moneyball La La Land. These movies that you know have very they're very similar they're very similar, but they're very different too. They have different meanings behind them. It's amazing how he's able to do that and dissect that. That's a lot of work. Part of his line of thinking is why I asked him to do Goats with me every month. Uh, in that way because i think he thinks in that way and yeah i mean this is just good evidence for that yeah and it seems like shane is putting up a review at least every other day on the site so that's also just been cool to read those especially movies that i've never heard of that guy can turn out some excellent reviews and he it's like almost effortless for him man he i don't know how he does it he's a machine (laughs) well and he like pumps out something one once or twice uh, at least every other day yeah and like it, it, anytime anything comes out he sees it the day it comes out it's like how do you have time for this like, exactly i'm like dude i'm barely like catching the new movies i don't think with most movie critics like full-time movie critics have the time to watch what he's watching but kudos to you shane yeah. <laughs> maybe next time he's on I'll, I'll just have to ask him how on earth do you do it <laughs> so yeah so we write all those stuff for sifpop.com ben manages that make sure all that gets up for the today's show we're going to move on to the coming attraction soon we'll talk about a movie that's coming out soon. Uh, this week we'll be talking about the comeback trail. And then on to our SIF topic this week, which of course is comic book movies. Since Ben is here, we'll be talking about V for Vendetta because remember the remember the 5th of November. And this is pretty close to November 5th by the time that this one comes out. And so we talk about that. We'll explore B-plot answering a question uh, from, I, I think Joseph sent this one. Uh, maybe this was one that I kind of derived from something that Joseph said a while back because we do that sometimes. Uh, and we'll wrap up with a spinoff quick recommender warden for each one of us. But first, let's get a chance to know our writer this week. Ben, we've got a chance to know you quite a few times over the week. So I don't have the typical questions for you. I don't have the, you know, how did you get writing for Sif Pop? We'll, we'll get back to that at some point, maybe in January. But uh, I'm really interested. So for the month of October, you said you're watching nothing but horror or scary movies, uh, which, man, good for you. I 
we'll talk about my experiences next week with the haunting of hill house and the haunting of bly manor but and how just the holding a hill house alone caused me to lose lots of hours of sleep so i don't know how you did it but <laughs> good for you what what was your favorite movie that you watched uh, whether it was a rewatch or it was a new experience maybe or maybe one of each listen man now that that month is over like so on my on my podcast i i did nothing but horror movies as well as nothing but watching horror movies and now that it's over, I had so much fun doing it. But now that it's over, I feel like Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, where he's just like, it's done. It's over. I can get back to watching happy things now. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you got to um, pop in like Care Bears or something. <laughs> I, dude, I'm about to name all the movies I've watched. I had the pleasure of. Okay, watching, go for it. Nothing but horror movies. And I watched The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, The Exorcist, the 1931 version of Dracula and Frankenstein, the Scream franchise, The Haunting of Bly Manor, which, by the way, had no business hitting as hard as it did the last episode. (laughs) My God. Nosferatu, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Hereditary, Midsummer, uh, or Midsummer, however you say it, uh, The Shining, Doctor Sleep, Gone Girl, which, by the way, yes, that is a horror movie. Uh, (laughs) Yep. Ready or Not. And of course, uh, one of my favorites, it's the first part of Grindhouse, Planet Terror. Um, so yeah, I watched a lot of... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably an average of once every other day. Yeah, it was it was a lot of work, but I watched a lot of good stuff. Well, and how many of those were new? The 1931 Dracula and Frankenstein were new. I had seen, of course, Evil Dead 2, Evil Dead. I watched those last year, Scream franchise. Uh, Nosferatu was new. Haunting of Hill House was new. The rest I had really seen, or at okay. least I hadn't seen in a while, and I was catching up on. But the one that that I really kind of want to dig into here, out of all the ones uh, you asked me, which one was my favorite? And I gotta say, out of all those, I, I enjoyed watching The Exorcist the most. Okay, and, and the reason being is that movie traumatized me as a kid. Yeah, I think you you talked about The Exorcist Exorcist as a spinoff uh, last month when you were on. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, hearing that just sounded awful and (laughs) it was it (laughs) It was but you know this past month you know i was able to kind of get over that lifelong fear and watch what i think is probably the the one one of the scariest movies i i have ever seen uh however it's it's also one of the best faith-based movies i think i've ever seen because at the end of the day this movie really is about a man struggling with his faith and coming to grips with that and confronting it head-on and that's why I really, really dug it. And that's why I really love it a lot, actually. Sure. I I did not watch The Exorcist. I don't see myself ever doing that. But what is interesting is I recently rewatched the Cursed Films miniseries. Mm-hmm. For my work, um, I am in charge of putting together a podcast. And one of the things that I do for that is a Monday night discussion-based thing uh, that is, you know, I put recaps up on the podcast. And this semester we're going through movies that have a like moral message to say some, something that we need to interpret about it. So uh, like tomorrow, my responsibility, like for my full-time job, I am watching and recording about the moral, the, the philosophy of arrival. Ah, and, nice. Well, and about how is Amy Adams keeping a secret from Jeremy Renner? No spoilers here. Um, is the secret the right moral decision? Yeah. Like, how does that play into morality? Uh, we we talk, I talked about Palm Springs and kind of like time loop and kind of the effect that we have on consequences and of our actions and 
decisions, talked about determinism, talked about identity, talked about like legality, morality, like Gone Baby Gone, Watchmen, Batman, stuff like that. Uh, but And I did t- curse films um, a little bit because I think that that miniseries had some really interesting to say. One of the things was The Exorcist, the, the amount of people that uh, went into priesthood after The Exorcist raised by, I think, like 300%. Yeah, because of that movie, because because the priest is portrayed as the hero. And at the end, there's that glimmer of hope like you were talking Mm -hmm. about. I mean, even even as recently as 2018, like the Vatican um, even like sent out a bunch of people, a bunch more people to to be full time exorcists as priests. Part of part of it is that movie's kind of awareness and making it to the public consciousness so that people can maybe identify something. Uh, But there are also people that are trying to just do that. So, I mean, that's. It's crazy to me. I didn't watch too much, too many horror movies this uh, this week because I did Haunting a Hill House. And like I said, I was already losing some sleep, and I'm not typically a horror person anyway. Um, so I, you know, I watched the Halloween and the Birds for the podcast, and I, I watched the Haunting a Hill House, Haunting a Bly Manor, which I'll talk about next podcast episode. Excited? Yeah, it's, I'm excited to talk about it because I have many thoughts to say about both. I, I did watch on. Um, the day before Halloween, uh, because I was craving it, partly because I wrote about it for the BEC challenge, but I, I watched Sinister again because Sinister is an excellent movie. It's criminally underrated on IMDb, only has a 6.8. To me, it is such an excellent study of film and horror film. I think Scott Derrickson is directing his ass off in this movie. It is a excellent usage of sound and light specifically. And if you've seen the movie, there are some really disturbing Super 8 footages uh, in, that are shown in the movie. And one of the things that is most fascinating is any of the Super 8 footage is actually practical. And so there are some really gruesome things that happen. Some, some things that you might expect are CGI or rigged or anything. And no, it is all practical. They just paid the crap out of stuntmen to actually do some really insane things such as stand in the bottom of a pool with weights attached to your ankles and like no breathing apparatus. So mm. that's crazy. And that movie is excellent. So that was kind of the, the one, the other one I watched. I remember telling you, I haven't seen it and I saw your, your recommendation obviously through Slack and, uh, and uh, through the BEC. So I was like, you know what? I need to get around to it. And I didn't, but I'm still going to watch it at some point. Yeah. It's if you, if you don't get around to it by next October make sure it's one that you watch next October. Absolutely. Ben, what's your favorite horror movie of all time? Oof. Um, this is, this is a difficult question. Um, and the reason it's difficult is because there's, there's two different types. There's the most effective horror movie. And then there's the horror movie that I could watch over and over again. So, I'll kind of cheat. Uh, I'll give you two answers. Um, okay. My favorite horror films are, and they're kind of tied. It's Scream and The Shining. Um, okay. Scream, I find infinitely rewatchable because it's funny. It's scary. Sure. It balances a great tone and it's lampoons the, the horror genre while also paying homage to it. It's, awesome not to mention the movie is written by a good old north carolina guy so and he's from new Bern. uh the shining is of course i think when it came out maligned people hated it and now it's looked at as one of the best horror movies ever made jack nicholson just goes full tilt in it he's, he's so good of course if you if you are a fan of the shining i highly recommend mike flanagan's um dr sleep it is a yeah. fantastic movie but i think the most effective horror films and i've already talked about the exorcist so the exorcist and hereditary those movies okay those movies terrify me 
mostly because they involve demonic possession and the devil and you know all that and hell and all that sort of stuff and so that it's very very effective on someone like me and those are not the movies that i will watch again i'll watch the shining or scream and i won't be scared necessarily and i'll watch them by myself and be okay but watching The Exorcist and Hereditary, I don't think I'll watch those ever again by myself. <laughs> I'll be watching those at like parties if I'm like introducing them to to like friends and stuff. Like, hey, let's turn this on or something like that, and just see how everyone else sure. reacts. I, I talked about this last two weeks ago, I guess, with Robert. And uh, I, I mean, I think it, it ultimately comes down to just straight up horror movie. Alien is my favorite. I, I just think it's excellent. I think I think it's so effective at being scary. I think it's really good at. Um, containing. I think it's directed really well. Um, I love kind of the mythos that they're setting up. Some of the reveals are really interesting, really good. And also it doesn't hurt that I've only seen Alien and Aliens and then AVP Requiem for some stupid reason because that movie's trash. And then I've seen the prequels, the Prometheus and Alien Covenant, which I really like both of those. So step uh, step off me if, if you if you hate those. So I haven't been exposed to some of the worst of the franchise uh, from what I understand. I mean, I think Requiem is widely held as the worst, but I know 3 and Resurrection are not held in high regard. But I, I think Alien is just excellent. And I think, uh, I think The Shining is probably one of my others because I, I think it's just a world-class in directing. I yeah. think while there are some things that just don't add up and maybe it's a little long and whatnot, the way that Kubrick uses a camera in that movie is is just insanely good. But also, as I was talking about with Robert, if, if I could include horror comedy together, that is my preferred if I'm going to watch a horror. So like Tucker and Dale versus Evil, Shaun of the Dead, stuff like that, then my favorite horror movie would be Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, hey, um, I got one last question for you. It's just a silly one for before we move on, uh, just to kind of maybe transition us a little bit better. But th- Ben, I think this is my favorite mo- like silly question that I've ever asked anybody. So you have the honor to answer: How many chickens would it take to kill an elephant? What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the look on your face is priceless. I, <laughs> I don't. Um... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like a thousand? a thousand chickens? I don't have any reference. <laughs> I don't know. That that is <laughs> maybe a million, a million chickens, just like an onslaught of chickens. Like the I mean it's got to be like at least 500, right? An elephant. I mean they have huge. sharp they have really sharp claws, but like an elephant skin is tough and it's, it's a big thick. animal like That's a big animal. Well, and I guess also I mean it Depends on how long, you know, one chicken for a couple of years could probably kill an elephant, but, but are we talking like kill it in an hour, kill it in a day? You know, that's, that's, that's tough. I'm I'm probably going to, I'm going to go with, it's going to take a lot to bring that, bring that elephant down, man. It's going to, all right, let's, we're going to settle final answer a lot, (laughs) a lot. Love that answer because who on earth, what, what metric do you measure that? Yeah, I have a question for you. How did you come up with that? (laughs) <laughs> oh, I just I Google silly questions to ask people, um, or or like some some weeks it's just something that I think about during my week, and it's just like that's odd, huh? Like you know, do penguins have knees or whatnot? But hey, let's uh, let's move on to our coming attraction. We're going to be talking about the comeback trail this week. Now, this is interesting because according to the trailer, this movie is supposed to come out this week in theaters, uh, but according to IMDb and Wikipedia, this is supposed to come out December eighteenth. But under the release section of Wikipedia, it still says this is supposed to come out this week. So there are just lots of conflicting reports. This might come out this week. This might come out in a month. We're talking about it this week, though, because that's kind of dumb. So I don't know. There's just a little bit 
of miscommunications, I guess. And the trailer only came out a month ago. So, like, five five weeks by the time this launches. So, like, this is not... I mean, they should have figured it out by then. You know, I think, like, uh, you know, Witches got pushed back when HBO Max bought the rights. Or they went streaming only. Like, they got pushed back, but it was to a streaming service. This is still playing on being a theatrical release. So, I don't know. So, th- there's kind of that kind of quick note at the beginning but the synopsis for this movie is two movie producers who owe money to the mob set up their aging movie star for an insurance scam to try to save themselves but they wind up getting more than they ever imagined and that's pretty vague and uh and ben and i we've done a little bit of research this movie you know we both watched a trailer but if there was no COVID in the world anything like that if you felt super comfortable going to the theaters uh would you try to catch this opening night uh wait for a matinee save a couple bucks you think you just wait to rent wait till it's on a streaming service you already pay for are you just not interested in seeing this movie i think i wait for streaming like i'm not okay i'm not super into it i I think the trailer looks okay but i'm a big fan of uh zach braff but I think the 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 trailer and the premise it's it's funny it looks silly but it's not like oh my god I have to go rush to see this or even a movie that I'm like you know what I'll check out a Mountain A it just looks okay but I'm a big Zach Braff fan and of course this has Tommy Lee Jones Morgan Freeman and Robert De Niro in it and I'm I'm a big fan of those actors when they're not um, sometimes phoning it in for a paycheck and hopefully this isn't the case for this one but um i'll probably be checking this out on streaming it it looks funny i chuckled at a lot of parts in the in the trailer man i i'm more excited to see this than you i'm i'm gonna go ahead and say matinee i could really see myself pulling the trigger on like a like a sunday afternoon or like here we have tuesday night or tuesday all day tuesdays is five bucks movies i could really see myself pulling something like that you know or just in general going to like an 11 a.m showing i mean i don't i don't think i will because of covid but you know if covid wasn't around i could definitely see myself doing that so you know we'll just have to see but i think there's enough about this that makes me really excited partly because the trailer made me, made me laugh quite a bit and i i didn't know what to expect from this movie based off the synopsis and like so here's here's the other thing. De Niro, Morgan Freeman, and Tommy Lee Jones are your three main stars, and Zach Braff it looks like as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also Emil Hirsch has a looks like it has a pretty big role in there. So uh, those are your, kind of your five main leads. Well, at this point, I think De Niro will take anything just because because he still wants to keep working. And sometimes he gets really good stuff, and sometimes he gets not great stuff, and sometimes he gets stuff that should be really great but just isn't like The Irishman. Uh, but you know he's still doing stuff like The War with Grandpa, and he at this point is just doing whatever and that's you know or like something like did he didn't he do dirty grandpa too yeah and that's like, kind of a, a guilty pleasure of mine i laugh at that movie okay mostly because i remember going to go see that with my parents and <laughs> that's what made that theater experience really funny for me was seeing sure. their reaction um i haven't seen it since i don't know if it holds up well we also have morgan freeman in here too who, like god love the guy but he also is one of those we'll just take a phone uh we'll we'll take a paycheck at this yeah. point and he straight up said that he, in he has got his oscar he is and that's not to say that he just does crap movies and same with de niro you know like they both still do good movies but they also do do a lot of things that are like we were talking about gold going with style before we started recording because of zach braff directing that and I mean, I didn't see that, but I know that that was pretty much widely panned. Thought like, man, this is just obviously a cash grab or, you know, Morgan Freeman wanted to have some fun. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of that type. And I mean, I think Tommy Lee Jones is the exception here. I don't think he just takes movies to take a paycheck. I mean, because even recently, I mean, 12 years now, but he did uh, No Country for Old Men. I, I mean, he's do- he doesn't do a lot. He's pretty selective with the stuff that he does do. Yeah. Um, we were there for a minute where he was doing a lot of stuff that was kind of 
fallen into that. Like I remember back in 2000, this is going back a couple of years, 2005, he did this movie where he was like the marshal protecting like a bunch of cheerleaders at assault. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man of the house. Yeah. Well, that was also like the men in black two space cowboys era. Yeah. Um, where he was, which I like skate. I like space cowboys, but uh, he was, he, he was doing a lot of some stuff was good. Some stuff was bad, but now, like you said, yeah, he's being kind of selective with what he does. Well, and so, I mean, but, you know, you, all of a sudden you have sort of a resurgence with two years later where he does No Country for Old Men. Uh, I, you know, not too long after that, he gets that role in Captain America, the first Avenger. I personally really love Men in Black 3. I think it's great. And then he does uh, Lincoln and then he does Jason Bourne, which, you know, not the great, but that's a good like career choice. Yeah. Uh, but then apparently he does the mechanic resurrection. So I, I don't know. It just apparently he's an ad Astra. I have yet to see that. I, I mean, he's he's not just like picking stuff just to pick like just to get a paycheck he still is for the most part picking things that at least he sees promising he's like he's doing a one for me one for you kind of thing with the whichever studios he's working with i did like ad astra that movie seems to be pretty um divisive amongst people divisive i really liked ad astra um some of some of the science didn't make any sense but I, i liked him in it he's very very little role in it but a prominent important one so then our other two leads, we have Emil Hirsch, who, I mean, my first exposure was The Girl Next Door. I think he's probably most known at, I mean, maybe most known at this point for the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, he was also in um, the movie he did with Justin Timberlake, something uh, Underdog, something Alpha Alpha Dog. Oh, Alpha Dog. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. He was he was, he was in that movie. And, he, and it looks like he was in Speed Racer as well. Mm-hmm. I really like Emil Hirsch. My first exposure to him was similar to you, Girl Next Door. I think that is a criminally underrated movie. Oh, Looks like he's also in Milk and Killer Joe. I've heard good things about both of those. Yeah, he's good in both of them. Oh, Lone Survivor. Yeah, that's right. Danny Dietz. Yes, he's very good in that as well. I think I think he doesn't get the quality of roles that he should get. No, he, I think he's, he's doing I think he's stuff good. recently. Like, he's kind of become a character actor now. I mean, he looks like he's having a fun time in this movie too. It looks like he almost just got right out of the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood set and hopped onto this one and you know, just kind of... Because st- this is the same era, same... Same location. This is supposed to be like '60s or '70s LA as well, in the specifically in Hollywood, uh, in the movie studio. But but I mean Zach Braff. I mean you guys know how much I praise Scrubs, and I think Zach Braff is excellent in Scrubs. But I don't really like much that I've seen outside. Of it. I haven't seen Garden State yet, but it just seems like people don't really want to cast him because he's JD. And I think sometimes it maybe is a little hard for him to get out of that or they're just kind of typecast him in that role. And I mean, I love the guy. I, I would like to see him do some more. I'm kind of surprised that he hasn't like had another hit. It's difficult for certain TV actors to break out of that uh, mold. Right. A few have done it. Will Smith is one of probably the bigger actors to do it. A lot of the, your Game of Thrones actors are currently trying. Amelia Clark has several times. I think she's very underrated, but she seems to not be able to catch a break. I think she's just getting the wrong roles. Yeah, but it's very hard to to break out of that thing um, where you're uh, you are a certain character for so long that people begin to recognize you as just that. And I think Zach Braff is a, is a is a really good actor. I loved Garden State. He's he's kind of a, not a pro or a con for me. I, I think there's a lot about this movie that just kind of seems um, like nothing's really going to tip tip me either way. But I think the trailer looked fun. I mean, George uh, George Gallo did the uh, writing and directing for this. It looks like um, he's done a lot of stuff, but a lot of stuff I don't really know, and some of it's not great. Like he did the story for the original Bad Boys, 
which I kind of liked. Nice. I don't love. And then he gets character credits on the rest of them. Uh, and he did the screenplay for the whole 10 yards, which I haven't got yet to rewatch it, but that movie is not held in, in good regard. Oh. It looks like screenplay is also on Josh Posner, who doesn't look like he's done anything uh, really before this. You know, maybe it's a fresh breath of fresh air, or maybe it's, I don't know, maybe they just wanted somebody else to tweak it, but they didn't want to pay a lot of money. I, I had a lot of fun with the trailer. I think this premise is really interesting. They essentially, this has a very like producer's vibe to it. Two people want to produce a movie and then have their lead actor die and then shut down production. And so they'll, they'll get a lot of money for that without actually having to do a lot of work. But, and then, so Tommy Lee Jones is that person, but apparently I think he's just going to be invincible and survive every, probably what I see this movie doing is either after production, after they've already filmed the movie or whatever, like he's going to die of something really simple. Um, and it like just, he's going to have an aneurysm or he's going to like have a heart attack and immediately die, or it's just going to be something just really small, but he's going to survive all this really trying to get him killed stuff on set. And so, um, like they make a joke about how, when they go into cast him, he's doing Russian roulette and, uh, like every day, which is my daily Russian roulette. We're like, well, this guy's perfect. Cause he's just going to accidentally kill himself one time. <laughs> yeah. And then we don't need to make the rest of the movie and we'll, Yo, we'll get the money that we need to pay back people. I, this looks like this looks like some fun, and I'm I'm interested in seeing this. There's not necessarily anything that's confirming this for me, except I I had some good fun at the trailer. I'll rent it. I'll give it a I'll give it a rent for for Zach Breath. Sure. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna check this out uh, probably pretty quickly. If this was coming to a streaming service, I would be picking it up pretty pretty quickly. I don't know that I'm gonna go to the theaters yet, especially because COVID cases rising in my area. The o- I think the only other thing that really should be noted is this is apparently uh, a remake of a movie that came out in 1982. It's an hour and 16 minute comedy um, starring sure. Chuck McCann, uh, Buster Crab, Hugh Hefner apparently was in it for a hot second. Directed by Harry Hurwitz. Lots of writing credits. Yeah, lots of writing credits. Wow. Max Rosenberg, producer. If I like the remake, I might go check back this original this original one too because the original has a six point eight on IMDb. But my guess is this was like a there's only twenty six ratings on this, so it must have been a very like local release or very small. Kind of sums up my thoughts. Do you have any more? No, I I am I I am all tapped out on my thoughts. Okay, well I didn't expect us to talk for that long as well, but. <laughs> Sometimes you just talk it out. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our SIF topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about V for Vendetta today. I want to do two warnings up front. Uh, the first is, obviously, we'll be talking about spoilers for this movie. And if you haven't seen this movie, this is really one that you should probably watch uh, before diving into this territory. Although, you know, if, you don't, if you're the type of person that doesn't care about uh, being spoiled, then, you know, you, you just do you. Uh, but we will be talking openly and freely about everything in this movie. The other spoiler, or the other th- thing I want to say is Ben and I are recording this pre the United States election for a reason. This movie is very p- political, and we wanted to take any political bias out of this movie. And so we were rec- we're recording before the election happened. This is a very politically charged movie. And um, this is a movie podcast, and yes, every movie is somehow influenced by some opinion or whatnot. But uh, but we wanted to uh, to do the best that we could to to really judge this movie just for uh, being a movie. And kind of also that caveat here is this is a very political movement, re- political movie, regardless of the era. You know, this movie didn't come out on an election year. It came out in 2006, and so in 2008 was the election year. And so it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about politics, but uh, Ben and I have had a conversation, and we just 
are going to remain politically neutral, but it is hard to talk about this movie without talking about politics. So all that being said, uh, the synopsis of this movie is, In a future British tyranny, a shadowy freedom fighter known only by the alias of V plots to overthrow it with the help of a young woman. This is based off of a graphic novel by... Uh, Alan Moore was the writer for it. Ben, what is your personal history with this movie? V for Vendetta is a movie that I think over time has become, you know, one of the more talked about and beloved comic book movies. When I came out, I remember being excited because, you know, I'm a Star Wars guy and I, I love the prequels. So Padme was in it. So I was, yep. I was excited about that. And I also remember it being a big deal that the actress Natalie Portman, who portrayed Padme, shaved her head for the role. I also remember this being a bit controversial when it came out because people thought it would, you know, glorify terrorism, which, but I remember my dad took, took me and my brother to see this movie in the theater, but you know, he was a little worried about that criticism about it, about the controversy. But afterwards he said he was very thankful for taking us to see the movie because of its themes of standing up against oppression, standing up for what is right, for what you believe in and the important, the importance of people having, freedom of choice and, and freedom of speech and freedom being free. And, you know, I was 12 at the time when I saw the movie. So while I really enjoyed the service stuff, like the action and the theatrics of V and how charismatic he was, there was always something underneath it that I knew I loved. But at the time, again, I was 12. So I didn't really know how to properly articulate why it resonated with me so strongly. But watching it now, I understand those things that my father was telling me about at the time. And I realize now, you know, the, the impact this movie had on me and my outlook on life themes that this con this country currently could learn from that you can't rule by fear and i think that could go for both sides sure. but you get all the emotions of the character of v my history with this movie is i didn't see it when it came out i was 10 when it came out and this just isn't a movie f made for a 10 year old and i think based off the trailers for some reason i thought this was like a period piece like i didn't think this was supposed to be modern day uh, it's actually in the future the movie takes place in the future. I thought it was supposed to take place uh, kind of closer to the actual Guy Fawkes era. I thought it was Guy Forks for the longest time because <laughs> of the English accent. And then I was watching this with my wife and she goes, it's Fox. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. You're messing with me. I thought this was supposed to be like 1600s to 1800s, somewhere around there taking place in the UK. I don't know why. I think some of the art style is kind of that way. And frankly, like British architecture, especially the places that they're showing, haven't necessarily changed in a long time. Like Parliament is a, is a very old building, and the um, the building that he blows up uh, at the beginning of the movie is a is an older building. So I think just kind of that uh, that style, plus the fact that V uses knives instead of guns, and there's not you know you don't see cell phones, or you don't uh, like often the way that he dresses um, or anything like that. Yeah, the way the way that the way that there are dresses, especially you know the most iconic shots of Natalie Portman in that movie are of her or in that trailer are of her wearing a potato sack yeah. and having a shaved head. So um, I, I think part of it was just I thought it was going to be a period piece, and I just wasn't really into that. So this just didn't really appeal to me. I don't think I saw this movie till high school. Um, so this would have been probably five years after it came out that I saw it. Part of it too is also when I'm 10, my parents wouldn't go take me to see this movie if I asked them. I didn't ask them. Uh, so I just, I watched this at home. Um, I bought the DVD and just, just watched it. And I, I thought it was excellent, but I really didn't know much of the plot. Uh, I was kind of spaced in and out. And uh, I've seen this probably three or four times since then. Um, this is not a secret that I love this movie. This is number 10 of all time for me. And so the reason this isn't a secret is because when Robert and I did our top 20 or a month ago since last time he was on, this came up 
because it's in my number 10. It's my, it's my number 10. So I think this movie's excellent. It's moved up in my list because the more I watch it, the more I understand it. The more the plot just makes sense and just in general, the more I pay attention to it. And that's that's part of the reason why. So I I love, love, love this movie. I have, for my graduation in high school, one of my friends went to uh, a store that we have in the mall and and, uh, and bought me a, a combo set where it has the graphic novel kind of in the back and then it has the mask in the front. And so the graphic novel sits on my shelf with the rest of the graphic novels, but the mask I still keep in the box because um, it's cheap plastic. It's not actual ceramic or it's not actually like thick plastic. Uh, and I don't want to ruin it. And it sits on top of my movie shelf. I still have not gotten around to reading the graphic novel just yet because it's a thick boy. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a but, long one. <laughs> but I am I am very much looking forward to to actually being able to dive into it at some point. Good. We both we both love this movie. Um, I don't know many people that don't at least like this movie. Although I could see why somebody might not like this movie. So I think I think maybe I kind of want to start in the negatives because I only have one or two. Does that sound yeah, good that's you? perfectly fine with me. How about you talk for a second about maybe if you do you have any negatives about this movie? It's not a big one, but it, it, it's a it's a slight one. I believe it's a little bit more black and white in the movie. What's wrong and yes. and everything like that and what's right. Uh, but in the graphic novel, obviously, there's the real answer to what's right and what's wrong. But they build a little bit more why they made the decision that they did, why they did what they did. And they expand upon that, and the people who are in the uh, the party. What's that called again? Norse fire. The people who joined them, why they did, and how they are normal people, but they're making awful decisions, and it kind of humanizes them a bit. And V is a little bit more of an anarchist, and it attacks you know how both extremes are bad. And they they represent something that that's bad, but V is a little bit more in the in the in the right, and him pulling so extreme is going to pull that other side closer to the center, where everyone wants to be. And I wish they did a little bit more because V is a little bit more vicious in the uh, graphic novel, and he's not as vicious here, but. That's really my only complaint is that I wish there would have humanized the other side a little bit more, but I get why they didn't because, you know, people could take that the wrong way. Like, oh, see, they're not that bad when it's like, no, they're still wrong. They're just fleshing them out. I completely agree with you here. It's always been a bother of mine that there is very clearly people that believe in what is what is right. It doesn't seem like there are very many people in this movie that uphold um, the government side. It's, it's pe- characters are either very black or white, yet there is are very few people that are on the, the dark side. It's pretty much just the council that we see, except even our main character, the detective guy. I think he's the, supposed to be the head of the police. Pretty I much. Think. He is, he's, um, he's the head of the police, and he's kind of our proxy for what, I'm ta- for what we're talking about. Well, and so, I mean, that just leads me to this point of, so our main inspector... Finch is the only one who even teeters even but even by the start of the movie he's he's leaning he's leaning towards the light side because you you could tell he has problems um he just is quiet about it but everybody else is very clearly against this and so i i wish there was a little bit more nuance to some of these characters but you're talking this is a two hour and 12 minute movie i 
I kind of understand it, but like you, the government owns the media, the government owns pretty much everything that has any sort of speech. And so, but you can tell even the people that work for the media corporations don't believe in what they're doing. Like they're not, you know, quote unquote, dark characters. And we can see that through the proxy of Dietrich, the the talk show host. And so you can, you could just kind of see, especially when he shows Evie his Quran and his God save the queen poster, that's that he very clearly doesn't believe in the stuff that he reports. So, so we have like six or seven people so we have uh, Sutler, the the main uh, John Hurt character, and then Creedy, of course, the news anchor from the beginning that gets killed in the shower, Plethoro. But it, and and then the priest, <laughs> whoever the priest is, is uh, yeah, whatever his name is, is also just yeah. awful and uh, and very clearly like, for that authoritative government. But I mean, everybody else, even the 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 female character that was kind of in charge of the Saint Mary's operation, was a very like portrayed as light character um she was remorseful she was against the things that she is fighting but she's still scared of what's going to happen so and it just almost brings up that question of how has this not happened sooner and why is v the only one doing anything about it because everybody else just seems complacent uh but this is not a society that i would think makes complacent i I think it's fear it's the fear they're all terrified well, sure. to, to do anything. And since he is someone who has confronted his fear, which is what he makes Natalie Portman, Evie, what he makes her go through, and why at the end of the movie she is kind of the same way, like after she breaks out or after she leaves V's place, she's walking around with the fake ID and everything, and she's faced her fear, she's no longer scared. They are under so much fear and tyranny. Everyone wants to do something, but they're afraid of the consequences because they'll be taken out so quickly but by the end everyone's fear is gone after the little girl has been shot by the police officer they all take to parliament their fear is gone and it's the the power of the people people should not be afraid of the government the government should be afraid of their people kind of thing that v is trying to get at which in itself is a philosophy that i love the idea of but at the same time nobody should fear anybody right (laughs) The two should work hand in hand, but yes, when push comes to shove, it should be the people that have the power, right? Um, that's how democracy is set up to work in theory. I just think that the characters are very, they're either a complete good guy or a complete bad guy. Um, and uh, There's not much nuance there. Yeah. I mean, the c- characters themselves are nuanced. It's just that decision and that they wrestle with. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. It's all like, okay, we're supposed to like this person. And we're not supposed sure. to like this other one. And the ones we're not supposed to like are despicable. Like the stupid talk, talking head. And so he's like, I wish I were there with him right now. I tell him how I feel. And then he's seeing him again. He's like, oh, God. He's like all weird and petrified. Right. It's like, yeah. Sounds yeah. about right. <laughs> so I, I really only have two other things about, about negative. I want to say but, Well, this is not really negative. Um, so I'll, I'll do my for sure negative one and I'll ask you. This movie is two hours and 12 minutes. I swear the first time I watched it, I thought this was three and a half hours, though. There's a lot for this movie to unpack. It feels really long. It's a slow movie. It's a patient movie. It's one that is interested in getting you all the setup and getting you to understand where this movie is uh, and what the society is, how they got to this society. And it pays off because you truly understand how this society became what it what it has. 
um, you 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 can definitely see how the nation would turn to the the North Norse Fire. Fire Party in the world that they've set up in the world that you know there's this virus and there need to be somebody to take authoritative control uh, because most of the world had already you know perished by then so out of fear people turn to that so that got set up but then the problem is they never removed that power anyway so it, it does a good job of setting up how things came to be and why things are the way that they are but this movie just i, I think it still goes down to pacing and i've seen this three or four times it feels shorter each time i watch it but it still feels like a two hour and 45 minute movie so, I, I think the movie moves eye pretty fast at least for me and then I, I never really had any issue with with the pacing. I, I think it moves fast enough, and there's enough political intrigue that I'm interested. Even for again, when I was twelve, I loved this movie. I wasn't able to, you know, dig deeper into the themes because again, I was twelve. But I really, at least even then, I really, really enjoyed watching this movie, and I didn't ever feel bored. Even though there's really two action sequences in this movie, yeah, like. Do you have the beginning when V saves Evie, and then you have the end where V final stand, and that pretty that's much it. <laughs> there's there's a lot of uh, well, there's a lot of like small action set yeah. pieces, but it's not like it, it's V you know sneakily stealth yeah. kills one person. It's not V goes through fifty armed guards to get to this one person. Yeah. To kill them. it's it's not it's not a lot of a lot of that, and I I kind of like that this movie did that. Versus going for the big bang, which that this comic book is not not like that. So I'm, I'm glad it's this is written sure. by Alan Moore. So obviously it has a lot of those kind of like Watchmen vibes. Well, there's not really a big sure. action scene in Watchmen, but there's a collective like little things. Sure. So I'm going to go to the the last kind of negative I have is this movie does a really good job of feeling both realistic and radicalized. I feel like this is a world that makes sense for the history that it has set up but at the same time i think that it, to some degree it feels over over dramatized um and i you know i talked about that was my biggest complaint about the documentary the social network the, the parts that aren't a document or aren't a documentary the part that are a dramatization are so overly radical so overly the farthest of that something could possibly go um, like so, the most evil that it, the most controlling that a dictatorship could possibly be is in this movie. The most evil that they could be is represented in the suitor character. It's it's just so hyper. What's what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's not like it's not like hyper stylized. I mean, it is, but I see what you mean. It, it over dramatizes things, but I think that's to at least for me, it's to to nail the the point home of what they are up against and why these people are so evil. I mean, essentially the bad guy, what's his name? Uh, He is essentially Hitler, but I I think, you know, dictators are often like that. So it, 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 it made sense to me. It made it easy to hate him, and it made, you know, audience members not as like, well, you know, Sutler's terrible, but at least he has order. And then, you know, well, V is an extremist and he's an anarchist and anarchy is never the answer, you know, so it gives that less ambiguity to give you someone to root for. But at the same time, that kind of goes back to our main problem with it is it's a little too black and white and there's not a lot of gray. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. 
So, so that's kind of the negative stuff that I have to say about this movie. But Ben, kind of as a transition into kind of gushing all over this movie, uh, I, I have to ask: Do you think that this movie incites violence? Because that's a lot of no. the criticism that this movie initially no. came out with. Okay. I, I, I don't. I always push back against anything that says movies are art incite violence. They don't. They never do. I always push back against it, and I, I will never agree with it. It's an argument that comes up time and time again. It, came up with Fight Club, it came up with the Scream movies, Joker, everyone thought, you know, regardless of how you might feel about that movie or how I might feel about that movie, sure. a lot of people thought that that movie would incite violence before people saw it. And it didn't. There's always those talks about art influencing people to do terrible things and i just i don't i don't believe it i don't buy into it i do buy into it on a small scale i do think that um that movies can have the potential for somebody and and part of it is somebody maybe who is not um getting the right mental health treatment that they need or just somebody who's just not the most stable or somebody who's you know simply bored like robert and i talked about rope i think that the right kind of media can definitely influence somebody but I'm, i think on a small scale um i think it could um incite an individual to do something as opposed to um you know the masses to do something so i think that the joker might be an influence for some people but i don't think the masses but i'm just in a general term uh for for that i don't think this movie incites violence and and here's why is people were afraid that because v is a anti-hero because he um he kills people that frankly deserve to be killed and he uh, he uses his methods with violence that that this would incite violence and revolution. And first of all, I mean, 2005 was not like the best time in the world. But I mean, there's not anything in public consciousness that people were fighting and trying to incite violence over. You know, this nothing compared to you know 2020 or uh, you know 2013, uh, primarily the um, uh, George Zimmerman trial. Um, or, you know, even, even something like the, you know, I, I mentioned, I was watching, uh, the 487, uh, documentary on HBO, which is, which is really good and half really good, half really not the Elian Gonzalez case. Like that might be something that I could see somebody trying to, you know, mass is trying to do that. But I, I also just think in general that while V is a character that uses violence as a means to an end, he doesn't promote violence. He doesn't send knives in the boxes. He doesn't send guns in the boxes. He sends a cape, a mask, and a hat. And the people in masses peacefully uh, protest and peacefully rush parliament. There, There is a... V himself does not encourage violence. He encourage, encourages um, the masses uniting together and demonstrating the power of the people in a peaceful kind of way. So that's why I don't think that this movie... It's also important to take into consideration the ending of this movie. It is not V's decision because he realizes he cannot be the one because he is an individual and his individual experience cannot dictate the country. And he realizes that. So he has is the every person and Evie who has experienced this. It's her decision. It's up to her. And I think that that's important. It's never him at the end, by the end of the movie to make this decision for the people. He uses someone who is the every person to make the decision. So you have to take into consideration what the movie is trying to paint. And it paints that maybe his experience is not the one that we should be latching onto, but rather Evie's. That's the message to take home from this movie. 
I yeah. think that that's why it's it's important in the context of this of movies that are quote unquote in that incite violence is what the characters go through and what the characters say and what's right and wrong. Sometimes the movie doesn't necessarily tell you, but you can clearly see what the director, um, if they have a steady hand, can do. And yes. that's why like a movie like Fight Club got so misunderstood when it came out, thinking it was a movie about toxic masculinity. And in fact, it's a dark comedy making fun of toxic masculinity. Right. Uh, people, people didn't right. really realize that at the time. Well, it's also one of those things, so I'll talk about this a little bit more next. Well, I won't talk probably about this specifically, but I watched This Is Us. Um, so since we'll talk about TV next week, um, I'll, I'll talk about it then. And there are a lot of people in the Facebook comments that are just mad that the show, which is set, you know, trying to take place in relative real time um, and definitely supposed to take place in the present, is addressing the COVID issues and the killing of George Floyd. And one of the main characters is a black person. So it makes sense for both for for him to be going through it in in this tv show and it also just about the whole covid pandemic there are people that are mad that they're bringing this and they're like i watched this tv show as an escape from from reality first of all if you're trying to escape reality and you watch this as us that's not how you escape reality because that's a kind of hyper realized watch, um, watch family guy yeah there you go there you go something you know um something lighthearted you know to escape reality or like animated shows like yeah are great for that you know watch watch looney tunes for crying out loud like why are you watching a really heavy practically soap opera just that's done yeah, well it's a very soap opera um, i've never i've seen only a couple episodes but that that show is very uh soap opery yeah yeah but it, but it's done yeah. well and it's why are you going to this to quote-unquote escape reality but also like if you think that whatever you watched isn't influenced, and you briefly touched on this earlier, if you think that whatever piece of content you're watching isn't being influenced by the opinions and the beliefs of the people that are making it, then you are sorely mistaken. And so, I mean, whether it, whether it's a book or whether it's a graphic novel, whether it's a movie, whether it's a TV show, even something like Grey's Anatomy is influenced uh, because it's made by people and people have opinions and people have their beliefs and and they're maybe not trying to force something on you, but at least they're trying to demonstrate their beliefs in their work. And so I just think that I can't remember how I got on this, but it was something something about you said about whatever it's I've said my piece. Um <laughs> And so no, I don't think this movie incites violence. I think this this movie encourages people to hold their government government accountable, and we can do that in ways that aren't necessarily put on a mask and cape and get a thousand and a half people and and get to you know the the main centralized government location. But we can do that also by you know calling your local election you know people uh, your your local government govern government. government uh, as well as your state government and you know talking about the things that are important to you and so. Uh, I'll, I'll jump off that soapbox there. I don't think this movie incites violence whatsoever. I, I don't, I don't um, either. I, I don't like if you, it's, it's funny. I think if, if you want a, a solid uh, example of kind of the climate around the, the perception of this movie, go read the, some of the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's always interesting to go back and, and read those and see if those takes hold up again Opinions are subjective, but it's amazing to me how many movies over time. I think time is probably the best example and best metric for how good a movie is because, you know, it, it happens often where movies come out, talked about one. Jennifer's Body brought that up. When that movie came out, people hated it. Now, yep. 
oh my god this movie's so good it's misunderstood you know and again i haven't seen it but like people hated it when it came out now people like it i saw it when it came out and didn't like it <laughs> uh, but i don't like horror yeah. movies well like it's amazing to me to see how many movies over time develop this like cult following because we remove ourselves from the perception of what it should be to what it actually is and i and i think that that sure that is a fun thing to do yeah i do have one more negative um that i forgot i did because i didn't write it down and it's just kind of thinking more along the lines of these these characters being so black and white is that this movie while i i get that it's it's more of a philosophical piece uh, and more of a metaphor for a lot of things is not as simple as it suggests. And I know that the graphic novel is a little bit more nuanced in some of this, especially I know the ending is different in the movie and the graphic novel uh, because the ending is left without and it, the, the graphic novel is not a definitive ending, right? It's, it's meant to be ambiguous uh, where this movie is, I think pretty definitive and hopeful in a way, but I think that part of it is the movie. Part of it is the nature of the black and white characters. Part of it is the fact that it's you know, like the two hour, two hour, 12 minute movie. It's just, it's too simple. All you have to do to overthrow this dictatorship is to kill, let's see the, 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 the church, essentially the Pope of, of the UK, this dictatorship, uh, the, the head of it, the uh, Creedy, and plethora and syringe like you just kill those five people and then the government should just be easy to overthrow and it's just it's not that simple it's just not i mean there's a reason why it's a common belief when you're a kid you think well if there was so many slaves and so few slave owners why didn't the slaves just it's it's not that simple right part of it is is pressures part of it is um well what happens after part of it is okay well there are plenty of people enforcing this and especially if you're on a plantation it's likely surrounded by several other plantations some you're gonna get caught at some point there's lots of Lots of different, it's, it's just not this yeah, simple, a, but because this movie is really more of a philosophical statement than it is trying to tell a, a story, it, it is telling a story, it's telling a simplified version of a story. Like I'm willing to forgive it obviously because it's number 10 of all time, but I think this movie would have worked better as a miniseries where they could have do- dove into some no, of the new they'll, They do address um, something that they have been doing in, um, or I just recently watched it, uh, Mandalorian season two episode. Uh, yeah. I, I won't spoil it for you, but they get into it in the novels too. This vacuum of power after the second that star is blown up, you, you see the celebration on Endor and everyone's happy. Well, it's not that simple. Once a big power and threat is taken out, usually there that leaves a big vacuum. Well, which is, I think, the intended purpose of the First Order, mm-hmm. uh, as well as, I mean, you could even see that in season one of The Mandalorian with the Werner Herzog and the uh, Giancarlo Esposito characters. Someone, usually nefarious, comes in in that vacuum of power to take power. Well, there's also, uh, there was the holiday that we just celebrated in um, Juneteenth, because, the, uh, so it was in June, gosh, that feels like so long ago, because the premise of that is that that was finally when there was there were slaves that even though they had been emancipated for months had no idea and so finally somebody came and told them no 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 like this is the union one the emancipation proclamations thing you are free you have been free for months so but that's exactly what you're talking about it's just not that simple no it never is um to overthrow this to overthrow this simply yeah it it never is but i like the ending in this movie because it's it's hopeful and uh, it's easy to digest. Um, if you want to dig beneath the surface a little bit of it, you can. It's there. 
but it's simple enough to where you can see it. And it's, it's, it gives me chills each time where you see all the people taking their mask off just to see what this is and they're doing it peacefully. And it's, it gives me chills and the music tours, you know, that them just walking and the soldiers standing down, it's powerful stuff. Yeah, this, this so we can start talking about all the positives now. Um, now that we now, I don't think I have anything else negative to say about this movie. But yes, this is one of the best movie endings of all time. I really like the way that they chose to do it for the movie. My understanding is that the graphic novel is more ambiguous. I don't think it has the rushing of the thousands mm-hmm. to Parliament to watch everything blow up. I could be wrong about that. I just know in general it's not supposed to be as a definitive ending. But yes, I think everybody taking off their masks to watch the fireworks after they've getting gotten past. Uh, it's a very hopeful ending because they could see Parliament's been taken down. They're they're standing down. They're they're not firing their weapons, and, and you just see all these people take off their masks and their hat, and you, and you see it's it's common people. Like they don't throw in like a Brad Pitt and a Matt Damon. It's 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 a bunch of extras, and then every now and then you'll see the face of somebody who died earlier in the movie, like the little girl with the mm-hmm. Coke bottles glasses, or you'll see some other characters that have that have died. And I think we see the the two girls uh, that. Uh, yep, we we see them, and we see um, the talk ho- the talk show host who is the good guy, yep. um, Dietrich. Yeah, you see him. You 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 see all these characters that. Even the ones that you see in the bar when V's doing his speeches and everything like that and having his say. You... It's so powerful. It is. Just this ending. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's so good. It's, it's tasteful. It's, it's hopeful. And gosh, it, it, just, it just brings apart the message that this movie has been trying to say, which, which is that words are bulletproof. Great quote. V fights V fights more with words than he does with swords, and so yeah. If 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 words are bulletproof, then the legacy of these dead characters still lives on in that protest. So that's excellent. Yeah. What do you Oof. What do you think of Hugo Weaving in this movie? I have uh, I have a note here that all of the acting in this movie is terrific. Yeah. John Hurt is great. Natalie Portman is great. Stephen Fry is great. Stephen Ray is great. I I, I specifically even love um, uh, Sunia Cusack. Uh, she plays uh, the the lead of the St. Mary's. It's the one where Hugh kill, uh, V kills her in, in her sleep. I think she, that's just a really emotional, powerful scene. Mm-hmm. I think this movie is excellently acted. The, the uh, message, Valerie, Valerie as well. The message that she leaves at the end of, is it yeah. is it enough to say that I'm sorry? Or is it too late? Is it too late? Yeah. And he goes, yeah. never. Well, and you can also tell she means it. Yeah. She's remorseful that entire conversation. So even before knowing that she had been killed or she was going to die. But um, but I, I think that all the acting in this movie is spectacular. I think specifically Hugo Weaving is the standout, which is surprising because two reasons. One, he's covered in a mask the whole time. And it's not like the mask moves. It's not like, you know, Dr. Manhattan or it's not like uh, Caesar. Uh, in the Planet of the Apes trilogy, it's not like they're doing some really spectacular visual things here. It's 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 body language, and it's voice work, and it, it's it's so powerful. It's so good. The other thing that's surprising about that is that Hugo Weaving was hired after filming had started because they had somebody else I can't remember who in the role, and they had already filmed the the scene where he first encounters Evie, but they hired Hugo Weaving instead. They had to have him dub over later because they couldn't find a way to to mic him up properly, so. Um, I think he is spectacular. I think he's excellent. This is my favorite Hugo Weaving performance. I'm not a big Lord of the Rings fan, though. We've talked about that. So I, Elrond is Elrond, and that's fine. Uh, and he's good in that, but this this is so much more to chew 
It's, yeah. it's so good. It's so good. I love well, and he's, I mean, I mean Agent Smith, he, mm-hmm. he's terrific. In, and for, I mean, I know a movie that you love as well. He's excellent in Hacksaw Ridge. Yes, yes, he is. I thought he should, I thought, honestly, he was robbed a Best Supporting Actor nomination that year. He wasn't nominated. I thought. He is, he is the most tortured I have ever seen anybody look. I think he's ex- excellent, but I think everybody in this movie is excellent. Yeah, everyone in the movie is is, is terrific. There's not a weak link. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know how he manages to stand out as well as he does. But, well, and I'll attribute it to this. One, he's an incredible voice actor. Uh, he is a character actor because you know, Agent Smith is meant to be like that exactly what he does. And I mean, he's done other you know, with even with Elrond, like he is meant to just embody a sort of character and he does do things. He's not afraid to do things that are you know, covering his face or he's not afraid to you know, do some voice work or things like that. But, but I'm also, you also have to attribute it to the screenplay. The screenplay is excellent. I think if it wasn't nominated for an Oscar, it really should have been. The, the, the um, use of these when he's int- introduced. Yes. Uh, that, well, that's the common example and that's an excellent scene uh, and that's very well written out. But I also think, uh, I mean, you have little lines in there every now and then, which are, you know, like m- most notably, uh, you know, we talked about, they said, uh, people should not be afraid of the government's government should be afraid of their people. But then there's also Evie mentioning about the art when she sees V's place for the first time. She says, my father was a writer. He used to say that artists use lies to tell truths while politicians use the, uh, use them to cover up truth up. V talking about a building being a symbol. Um, v, the whole um, story of Valerie is great. Uh, but I think the scene that probably gets overlooked a lot is the scene where V makes his announcements to the city. And he says, one year from now, I'm going to, he's I, d- I destroyed old Bailey. And one year from now, we're going to gather at Parliament on the 5th of November. And so I, I think that th- that has some really good wordplay, some really good nuance. It, it's, it's just incredible. I don't, I don't think this movie was nominated for any Oscars based yeah, off I, of what I'm seeing. I don't, I don't think so. This, I could see Natalie Portman, definitely best screenplay uh, director, um, James McTeague. He didn't really do too much after this. That was pretty good, but this was really good. Yeah. I, I could see a lot of Oscars that I think, in hindsight, this should have been nominated for. I don't know about like necessarily winning. Yeah, what else? I think I've pretty much hit on everything I love about this movie. I think it's, it's a wonderful movie. If you have not seen it, I highly recommend it. It's terrific its themes are important especially to today again we're not gonna you know dive too deep into the political aspect of it but it's it is a wonderful movie with great performances and a uh, a mess uh, a timely message that i think everyone can hear sure and you know even if it's just in a you know hypothetical sense right yeah i'm gonna i just have one two, well one fun fact and one thing to say fun fact um that both david leach and stout chad stahelski were the stunt doubles for v in this movie oh. which we talked about we talked about both of them being in um uh, the directors of john wick on your podcast uh-huh. we talked about john wick um and they started off as stunt coordinators and stunt directors and stunt doubles and all that so most notably for the matrix but of course since uh, the wachowskis wrote adapted viva vendetta as well um there must have been that connection because they are the the stunt doubles for v and specifically uh, i can't remember which one i'm pretty sure it's uh pretty sure it's david leach was um when v emerges from saint mary's hospital and he's completely burned and fired he was completely actually on fire that wasn't cg they just put a bunch of flame resistant gel on him and set him on fire and and he did his thing so that's (laughs) That's crazy (laughs) Um, so that's, that's my fun fact, um, is I thought that was really cool. 
I have to talk about my favorite sequence and my favorite scene in this movie and my favorite shot in this movie. It's the montage of everybody getting a mask, uh, which eventually culminates to this little girl girl dialing, dying and splicing into that is V setting up this massive 20,000 dominoes and then tipping them as soon as the little girl dying. So you know, he's, he's sh- it's showing you literally what he's doing and metaphorically what he's doing at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to explain that. It's a great way, especially I, th- I think it's really powerful, the editing where the, the police shoot the girl and she starts falling and then he just flicks the domino. And he's like, now we're going to get a chain reaction and crap's about to go down. And, uh, and all the work that I've put in is about to pay off. And it's, it's it's shot incredibly well. It's edited together really well. That is my favorite scene in the movie. It's my favorite moment. It's truly excellent. It's a great moment. Great moment. Cool. Yeah, I, I am officially out of notes now too. So uh, I think we both love this movie. Absolutely, man. Um, I know you don't have an official ranking, but about where would this fall for you? Would this be top 10, top 25, top 50? In, in terms of comic book movies or in terms of... Uh, in general. I don't know where this would land. It might crack my top 100 top 50 maybe uh top once you get once you start getting to like the top 30 top especially top 10 it's hard it's hard yeah my my top three movies i have that one huge cheat with number one being the skywalker saga which is almost a full day worth of movies Um, right and of course fight club being number two and number three being a cheat but a more tolerable one with lord of the rings trilogy those are like my top three but i this would probably it would it would probably squeak my top one hundred. I'd say maybe top fifty. Okay, yeah, like I said, I have this at ten, which makes this my favorite comic book movie of all time. Oh wow! Barely squeaking out. Uh, I have Avengers: Endgame and Infinity War at thirteen and fourteen. Well, I guess that's a while for comic books again. Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. quite a while down. I just actually so, did um, when I recorded yesterday with uh, Robert. I, I talked about what my top five comic book movies were, given. The, the day it might fluctuate Ooh. one two and three usually stay the same with dark knight bvs man of steel then probably um guardians of the galaxy and then endgame guardians of the galaxy and endgame kind of go back and forth okay i get that cool well uh let's move on to the to the b plot then so this is i think this is actually derived because th- i'm pretty sure joseph asked what is the best original song for a movie or what are some of our favorites and i wanted to do what is the best use of a non-original song in a movie and uh, there's a lot of really good choices for this uh i I have nine and ben has six uh so we'll do a back and forth i will go ahead and start um i had one on my list that i immediately thought of that i'm i'm gonna feel comfortable let's just go ahead and crown it whenever you whatever you say it that is probably that is definitely the best use uh, of, uh, of music in a movie but yeah i'll start i'll kick us off and i will say that uh, probably my favorite example outside of the one is the times they are changing by bob dylan in the watchman because it perfectly encapsulates everything that's going on it sets you in the mood that we're getting and it it, it complements the editing so well it's uh it's it's so fitting which is also just kind of interesting because the <laughs> that cover of hallelujah during the sex scene is just so unfitting it's like how do you have one of the best fitting and w- i know you don't agree with that but how do you have one of the best fitting and one of the worst fitting songs for scenes in the same movie it's it's just crazy but the times they are changing at the beginning of watchmen is is definitely it's it's number two for me yeah i uh i i like that song a lot i like that uh 
that song and the use of it a lot. I think it, it perfectly said, well said about, you know, it representing what that opening, that great opening sequence is trying to set up, you know, the times they are changing superheroes or not, you know, the way to go. I mean, it's, it's and so on the nose. It is. But... It works so well. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I have one that I'm pretty sure you also have. Where is my mind fight club? Yep. That's the number one. That is the best use of all time. Oh, dude, it's so, it's so good. It's so good. It's, it, it, it is a hint, not even a hint. It's pretty much a song talking about him and his state of mind. You know, where is his, like, he's, you know, going and he's pretty much gone insane, you know, came up with this split personality that he has now metaphorically killed. It's a great song, him finally making that decision because really the movie it's about. You know, he's willing to push things very, very far until it gets to Marla, who after a while he realizes he he loves. And that's the one thing he won't let Tyler himself ruin. Let himself ruin it. It's it's pretty great. But uh, the use of it is perfect. You just you hear that that faint or whatever. And then all of a sudden the buildings start to implode and it. Kicks in so awesome with that awesome guitar riff and the uh, line, the last line of the movie. You, had, you met me at a very strange time in my life. Is it's yeah. <laughs> it's so fitting. I, I love that song. I love that movie. Yes, I agree with. Uh, first of all, it's an excellent song by itself. Yes, um, Pixie. It's really good. Yep, the Pixies. I, it's a really good song. Second, it's it, it is haunting in a way. I put this on the Halloween playlist that I that I made not too long ago, leading up to Halloween, because it's it's melody, it's riff, the background, the you know the the vocals are are haunting themselves, and the the message of the of the song, the theme of the movie of of going insane, but also recognizing that you are going insane is it's excellent, and it's it's not. I mean, it, it is a little bit on the nose, but it's not like. You know, not like that. The times they are changing. Yeah, um, it it is on the nose, but it's but it's also not. They, they could have definitely picked um, some more on the nose songs for that. It, it is the perfect choice. It is the best use of a non original song in a movie, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I got to talk about Baby Driver because I love Baby Driver, and I think that every song in here is used incredibly. A lot of that has to do with the editing and the direction. A lot of it also has to do with most of the songs I was unfamiliar with. Like I was familiar with like Nowhere to Run and um tequila if i had to if i had to uh put it up to one though i think bell bottoms the very first song is the one that if you're going to make me pick one i think that's going to be the example that i use because it puts you right in the mood uh because it kind of gets it kind of gets slowly starts up there with that bomb bomb and you just like wait for a second it's just chill it's a bomb bomb but then all of a sudden it just digs into it and you just watch ansel elgort just like playing around in his car you know how connected he is to music immediately because like even the wipers are going at the right speed and then it, you know it kicks off to all that drop is like ladies and gentlemen now you gotta tell you about the fabulous most groovy bell bottoms and like right at that and that goes it picks up speed and it goes double time and it's like now you got this action sequence it's it's such an incredible fit for for theme and uh uh for setting up exactly what kind of movie you're going to get into yeah it's it i have only seen the movie once but that 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 is a good use all right your turn oh, this one's really easy uh free bird kingsman yeah i had that on my list as well yeah we've talked about this song we've talked about the use of it but yep this is so awesome it's so awesome the the moves the hits almost go to the flow of the music the the longer the the guitar solo goes on it's almost like the nuttier 
the fight scene gets, the more violent it gets, the more the fight scene picks up. It's so well done. It's probably the best use of Freebird in, in a movie. It's been used in a couple, but I think this is the best use of it. Yep, you're right. I definitely had it on my list as well. So, um, and we talked a lot about a lot more about that two months ago, three months ago when we talked about Ke- September mm-hmm. when we talked about games. And so, yeah, I'm gonna hit it. I'm gonna hit it with one that might be surprising. Uh, I'm gonna talk about um, in Deadpool two at the very end when after he like wears the shot collar and then takes the bullet to save Julian Dennison's character, the kid from Hunt for the Wilder People, the Fire, Fire Fist. Fist. Yeah. When when he actually dies and he goes to be with Vanessa and they're in that kind of like weird filtered kind of afterlife-ish type world, almost like a purgatory representation. The MTV unplugged version of Take On Me is playing and that's an excellent cover. I tried to convince my wife to use it as our um like ent- as the entry song for the for the for the wedding party to our wedding Aww. but we ultimately decided no because the message of that song is <laughs> is not fitting for starting a union of marriage together so yeah me and my wife came into uh the the star wars theme the metal ceremony oh nice the metal ceremony um my wedding party though came into never let you go by third eye blind okay i um edited some piano version from the uh uh, the audition song and the uh, me and Sebastian scene from La La Land, and that's what we came into. Nice. So anyway, but the, the this take on me cover is excellent. It's 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 also just very fitting fitting for what Deadpool is doing because this is a very emotional scene, and that song, especially the MTV Unplugged version, gets very emotional. But also, it's so Deadpool to do an acoustic cover of a yo cult classic '80s pop song like take on me yeah it's it's the perfect choice you know and i also thought about some of the other deadpool songs like angel or uh or angel in the morning or um x gotta give it to you but those are just fun um they don't fit as well as this one does which is also so frustrating because the extended cut puts a completely different song in there and it's just like it, put, you it puts ashes in there look i like ashes but i pretty much want to watch the theatrical cut instead of the extended just so i can have that moment with that song at the end i agree so the next one I have, Guardians of the Galaxy, Come and Get Your Love okay. by Redbone. I love this because, again, the movie almost starts off, obviously, you have the really, like, super, like, I don't, to this day, I don't think I've ever seen a, a scene like this in a Marvel film that impacted me as much personally as the opening to Guardians. And then it transitions several years later, and it almost opens like... Um, you have this ominous score and you, it almost opens up like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then you get him press and play on the Walkman, And it's this very upbeat, you know, song that just puts a smile on your face. And then of course the way that he, he's dancing, kicking the like space rats and taking them and using them as microphones. It's, it's so funny. It's joyous. It's so well done. It perfectly, it's a perfect example of the character of Peter Quill trying to ignore all the bad things around him with music and trying to hold on to that uh, young youthfulness that he has because he is caught in that state of arrested development, which is why I love that character so much. I I completely agree. Um, I thought about putting that one, although I did put Guardians of the Galaxy on here, and uh, I picked Ooh Child, and the reason for that is uh is because i think that song fits really thematically with peter's relationship with his mother and just kind of his his warned relationship but that song is really a good representation of 
Peter's a very cynical character. Uh, he's very, he's lighthearted, but he's very cynical, especially in the two Guardians movies. Kind of as we as we get a little further along, um, it's just more so the lighthearted. But he's he's very cynical uh, because of his family relationships, uh, especially when that Yondu one isn't resolved at the first in the first Guardians movie, or in the uh, and they're not at real they're not really allies. Uh, but it, it's it, when Peter does the dance off of Uchild at the end, you can kind of see he's kind of coming to terms with who he is. And with what he needs to do to save the planet of Xandar, it's it's an excellent representation of that character's progression in that moment. Uh, but it's also still silly because th- the place, the song itself is not silly, but the placement of that song there is silly, and that's kind of Chris Pratt's whole thing. So that's my pick. I, I love that song, and hearing you say that and the relationship and everything, I love the character of Peter Quill. I, I yeah. really, really do. He might be one of my, in fact, I think he is my favorite Marvel character. I love that character. And going back to that character, I have another song from Guardians of the Galaxy. And that is Break the Chain from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Okay. I Which one's that? Break the Chain is the Fleetwood Mac song. Plays at the beginning when he walks away from uh, Rocket. And then it plays again when he's taking on or, you know, finally realizing how to control his God powers. Mm-hmm. I love it because it ego broke the chain. He broke up his family. He put the tumor inside uh, his mother's head and was about to kill his son because he wouldn't conform. He broke the chain and Peter's like, I'm not, I'm not going to just coming at it from that song's perspective. He keeps his family together and decides to, if I'm choosing between my found family, my biological family, the my father who killed my mother, you know, you shouldn't have killed my mother or crushed my walk, man. I'm going to take you on and take you out. Um, (laughs) So like, I, I love this song. I love this song since I was a kid. My dad was a huge fan of uh, Boston and Fleetwood Mac. So I heard and and uh, Queen. So I heard a lot of them growing up. And uh, in particular, he's a huge fan of Fleetwood Mac. And this was one of his favorite songs. And that's why I, I, I love this song. And I love the use of it. You know, I had a different answer for Guardians too, but I'm going to respectfully rescind my answer because that's perfect. Yes. I was going to say Mr. Blue Sky because I think tonally it uh, it does really well, but there's not not anything near that surface level or it, it's surface level. It's not anything in depth like you're talking about. So I will respectfully rescind my submission of Mr. Blue Sky to just simply reaffirm what you're saying. Thank so you, that's sir. excellent. Thank you, sir. Um, that is a terrific pick. I'm just not f- as familiar with the songs from Guardians 2. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't place any of them in there except for Mr. Blue Sky because that's just incredible. We talked about this one when we talked about Kingsman as well, but I'm picking Country Roads from Logan Lucky. The reason we talked about this from Kingsman is because Country Roads was used in Logan Lucky, uh, Alien Covenant, and Kingsman 2 all in the same year, 2016. Uh, but I decided to pick Logan Lucky because in Alien Covenant, it's used as a plot device, kind of, and uh, and it's used really well in Kingsman 2. I thought that it did a good job of representing the Americanizing of of, uh, of some of the Kingsman stuff uh, happening and you know, the introduction of the Statesman and, of course, with Merlin's character. But it's, it's so much more powerful than Logan Lucky because it's got this constant theme throughout this movie and especially at the end where they do the talent show and the little girl sings it and everybody starts singing along. It's just so sweet. It's so heartwarming. 
it really uh, embodies, man, this was such a shocking movie because I wasn't expecting this movie to be as funny or as heartwarming as it actually was. I was expecting, you know, maybe not sleek is the right word. I was expecting a Redneck Heist movie and I got a Redneck Heist movie that was also really funny and really heartwarming. So so that's a, (laughs) that's it. And it's such a good use of that song too, because it's, it's a symbol for, him what's important and for his daughter which is really the the heart of the movie is their relationship not to mention yes. adam driver in that movie is so daggone funny he's what he's spotted well and daniel craig too oh god but yeah kind of what you were talking about the, the metaphor of this song it's you know that take me home is that and yes the song is talking about take me to america to the to the the neck of the woods where where i belong but because they are in the neck of the woods it's really he, the whole movie he's just trying to get home he's trying to get with his daughter yeah. and so yes it's a what's one you got it's the soundtrack yeah. for the girl next door there okay. is a song in there this band is really known for uh, or this band is really known for one song and that is bittersweet symphony the verve but they have another great song i mean they have a couple of great songs but this one in particular is one of my favorites it's called lucky man okay i love this song it is it's in the scene where he's dancing at prom with alicia cuthbert's character I love what it represents to him because it's what's important. Because throughout the entire movie, he, he is really obsessed with having the perfect grades, having this plan, going to this college, going to, I think it was Georgetown University, I think. I forget the college, but it's a really prestigious college that he wants to go. He wants to be president. And in this scene, it's him realizing what's important and that he is lucky because he has this group of friends that are willing to stick their necks out for him to make him, you know, not get in trouble. Like he very well could, because he gets involved with the wrong people. He is a lucky man. And he's, you know, the lyrics is I'm a lucky man with fire in my hands and the metaphor of the fire being her. So I, I just really, really love the use of the song in the movie. And I love the song in general. Yeah. I can't remember that song top of my head. So uh, it's been, I've seen the movie. It's been since it came out. I really just remember Paul Dano and uh, Timothy Oliphant in that movie. Being, <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk about "You're Dead" from "What We Do in the Shadows" by Norma Jean. This is a, uh, it's it's just the intro song for both the the TV show and the movie, and it just it fits perfectly. It's fun. It's a good song. It's it's kind of on the nose, but like it's not meant to be on. Like it is meant to be on the nose. The song itself was, it, you know, not not written to be the main credits over some people who literally starring are dead. Uh, but Taika Waititi just with his cleverness just and Jermaine Clement too the the combo of the two of them just they made it work they made it really funny they made it it's a great song and it just has an extra layer of comedy because it's placed there yeah I love what we do in the shadows I love that song um this is a very uh popular choice in your eyes and say anything a <laughs> boombox man <laughs> it's it's iconic but it's actually a really, really good song because it represents him as a character. You know, he's not someone that has aspirations to be a millionaire or anything like that. He wants to be a kickboxer. He thinks that's the next big thing. The song, is it perfectly represents what their relationship is, you know, working so hard for our survival, that lyric. He's someone who, who wants to be a success, but he's not someone who's going to be able to give this girl this rich future. It is a great song and it's a great use of the song too because it's so iconic. You know, like the the boombox, you know, it's, it's it's in the song twice. Yep. It's in the car and their love scene and then it's in him playing it outside her window, which is kind of creepy, but it's still, it's iconic. 
It's iconic. Yeah, I'm sure there would be some people mad at us if we didn't at least mention that. Look, there's going to be more that we missed too. Like, I haven't seen High Fidelity. I'm sure there's three or four great examples in High Fidelity. Uh, you know, and I'm sure there's there's lots of other examples that we're missing. But uh, my very last one that I have listed is uh, Do Wa Diddy in Stripes. Uh, because <laughs> that's great yeah because <laughs> i think stripes is a great movie and i think that if we're talking best uses of a song in a movie this first of all it's half the recording but mostly it's it's the it's the people singing along to it but it's just a good point because you have these two goofballs harold ramus and bill murray um in the army they're just got to be a goofball but it's also one of those things that because they're a goofball and they get, you know, they get in trouble for that. And a lot of the camp hates them, but you know, it's this is kind of the first thing that they do that, uh, that everybody kind of goes along with them on some of their goofball actions, because all it takes is, is, uh, is to just start singing. And then all of a sudden, you know, responding with the, the doo diddy, <laughs> the lick there, and then, uh, progressively more. And then all of a sudden it's like, it walked on everybody walked on. Like it's, it's perfect. Didn't think we'd be talking about Stripes today, did you? No, but I'm happy we did because that's one of my favorite comedies. I love, that. I love that movie. It's so funny. I don't know if all the jokes hold up, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's 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 a funny movie. If I can, I'll throw in one more honorable mention, and it's you go. It's for half it. a joke. It is the Rolling Stone song in every uh, Martin Scorsese movie because he uses them like all the time. <laughs> them exclu- exclusively. Yeah, but Rolling Stones is cinema. <laughs> Someone should make that meme right now. If someone's listening to this podcast, please make that a meme. Make it a thing. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to move on to the spinoff here. Ben, what is that one thing in pop culture that you want to tell everybody to watch or to avoid? I have an album. I've never really recommended a C- uh, uh, an album, but going off of you know our B-plot, I want to recommend one of my favorite albums, if not my favorite. I think it is my favorite. Um, it is This Is War by 30 Seconds to Mars, which is my favorite band. Uh, this album is bombastic, big, operatic. It's wonderful. Um, I believe albums contain stories. Sometimes we can listen to a song from an album, but it's one part of a larger context to an entire album. Um, I believe albums and music can tell stories just as good as movies can. This this album contains a lot of stories, and really it's one of rebellion, faith, and fighting back, which is kind of the theme of V for Vendetta. I highly recommend listening to this all the way through and enjoying the journey that 30 Seconds to Mars takes you on. It is my favorite uh, album from my favorite band. Shout out to Jared Leto. Yeah, I like this album. I like this band. Yeah, this is probably their best album. Uh, I mean, Beautiful Eye is has some really good on it. Uh, Love, Love, Lust, Faith, and Dreams is kind of, you know, half an, again, kind of hit or miss for me. Uh, and America is very hit or miss for me. But when it hits, it hits hard. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I really dig it. So, yeah, I'm totally with you there. I'm going to talk about a movie. Uh, and Ben, I, I know you're going to like this movie. I, I just, I know it. Um, so this is this is partly Ben. You yourself definitely need to check this out. But also, like I'm really recommending this to a lot of people, and I I think this is one that is going to gain some traction. And I'm so finally excited to say um, I am recommending Memories of Murder. This is a 2000 either one or three movie that for uh, some reason, for one reason or another, has never had a U.S. release until we're recording here on Sunday until this week. Uh, like a week before this. And so I had been wanting to see this movie 
but had got around to it. The reason for this is this is Bong Joon Ho's first big movie. Hmm. So it's an older Bong Joon Ho movie. This is uh, after he did Barking Dogs Never Bite, but this is before he did Mother. This is before he did The Host. Uh, this is obviously before Parasite and Snowpiercer. But of course, it stars uh, the the main actor that he he uses in most of his movies, uh, like in The Host and Parasite, the guy that plays the dad of the poor family in Parasite. Uh, but obviously, this is filmed close to 20 years ago, so he looks a little younger. This is uh, obviously a South Korean film, and it just never got a U.S. theatrical release. It's supposed to come on Criterion soon, because after Parasite won the Oscar they announced pretty quickly that they were going to re- release a Parasite Criterion collection as well as they were going to release Memories of Murder uh, on Criterion. And so uh, it currently does not have a disc release in the U.S. You can buy some region freeze, but they're freaking expensive to find because it's so rare. But this was re-released on uh, on digital by Neon the last week. And so it's digitally remastered to be 4K, even though it's like technically like released as HD quality. It looks like it's been upgraded very well. Neon usually does really good stuff with that. Uh, and you don't have to go through Neon to get it. You can go through Vudu, Google Play, Amazon. It is Movies Anywhere, so it'll port to any of the things you bought. So I bought it with Google Opinion Rewards, and then it ported over to Vudu, and I watched it there. But the story is it has um, two detectives uh, and a police chief in a smaller South Korean town that are trying to catch, uh, trying to find and catch um, a serial killer and rapist. Uh, a detective from Seoul um, comes down. And so you have these three detectives and the chief working on this case. This is kind of loosely and kind of not loosely based off of real a case. So it definitely is based off of it. They do take a couple liberties, but for the most part, they do get a lot of the details right, from my understanding. Um, they just choose to exclude some details um, because of the length of the movie. Because uh, there was like several more either murders but not rapes or something i don't know anyway there's a lot of details that are very similar uh it's a dark movie but it's not like like they don't really show you the violent acts happening um you just see the investigative standpoint afterwards this is an excellent character study um it's performed very well it's an excellent mystery um and the ending is is kind of pretty powerful uh it's not your typical bong joon ho movie um because it doesn't deal with like class and economics and things like that but this is for sure a great movie well i will certainly have to check it out because i i usually trust trust your opinion on movies so and i like bong joon ho i'm not i wasn't the biggest fan of parasite i, I love the first two acts but the sec the last act of the movie lost me Okay. I was a huge fan of uh, Snowpiercer. Okay. So I, I and and the host. Um, so I, I, I look forward to possibly checking this out pretty soon. I'm going to try to watch some happier stuff for the next couple of weeks because I've been diving into so much horror the past month. That's fair. That's fa- this is not a happy movie. So I'll, I'll wait a few weeks. <laughs> to, to... Well, this is not a happy movie. But one thing that surprised me is this is very funny. There are several moments that make me laugh out loud, and it's just it's just interesting when you t- can take subject matter like this and still manage to find some comedy in there. Yeah, Bong Joon Ho um, is really good at that. There's also yeah, this also, movie also deals with a lot of like corruption, and because it takes place in the '80s and just like the treatment of victim of people, it's this movie's excellent. I love it. Awesome. Uh, I like it. I like it more the farther I get from actually watching it, but I still really loved it when it finished. So uh, there we go. 
that's a wrap on that note. So quick reminder that Civ Pop Writers Room is part of the Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media or by searching Studio DNA in your podcast player search bar. If you are interested in writing for civpop.com or you want to get in contact with us, maybe send us a question to explore during the B-plot, then you can email us at writersroom at civpop.com. That email should be in your episode description. Uh, and if you want to support the show, help out with some costs that we pay for out of pocket, such as fees, equipments, and rentals. You can Venmo me at Schweitcastle, or you can email me uh, or uh, DM me on Twitter, and I'll give you a PayPal address that you can send uh, that to. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps out the show more than you will ever possibly know and um you go ahead and find me give me a follow or find me on uh, letterboxd or twitter with at schweitcastle sch white castle but that's where people can find me and communicate with me and all that good stuff ben what about you how can people get in contact with you and tell you about how good memories of murder is you can find me at uh on instagram at ben davis movie podcast where i post reviews of newer movies from time to time I post links to my podcast every so often, so or every time one an episode releases, uh, you can find me there over in, uh, on Instagram. Awesome. Well, uh, Ben, it has been such a pleasure having you on, as always. And uh, thank you for having me on. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so in about a month, we're going to be talking the MCU Phase One. So we'll cover up to the Avengers, and uh, next week I have Joe on to to do a TV catch up as always uh so that's what's coming up but for the meantime we got to get back to the writer's room mm-hmm.